Creekside this morning. We're, we're glad for those of you who have joined us in person. We're glad for those who are joining us online today. And this is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, so we want to we focus in on um, what we have to be thankful for. I know that it's been a hard year. I know that there's been a pandemic. There's been a lot of kind of separation, isolation that people have had to deal with. I know there's been kind of political stuff going on, a divisive climate. Um, there's just been kind of a lot of darkness. And I think it's more important this year than ever to focus on what God has done and what we have to be thankful for. And if we aren't feeling particularly thankful, let's praise him anyway. Um, I was reading Psalm 42, and in that psalm, the psalmist He's lamenting about some sadness he feels, some challenges he faces, but he makes the intentional decision to choose hope and to choose to praise the Lord. Um, he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And may we make that same choice today and this week. Praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Nehemiah 9.5 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Psalms 103.1 this morning um, on Revelation 1, and it was talking about the greatness of God, and I wanted to read an excerpt. It talked about his greatness and just our awe of him. So this is what it said. The, the writer wrote, when John saw the glorified Jesus, he was stricken with awe and dread. He realized his own sinfulness and inadequacy in the presence of Jesus. So in Revelation 1, he sees the Jesus. He's trying to describe what the king looks like. And he wrote, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, Revelation 1.17. John demonstrated the awe and reverence with which we should approach Jesus. 
So the writer says, I've heard people abuse and misuse this word awe or awesome. I've heard people say, this pizza is awesome. But when you experience true awe and reverence for Jesus, your legs turn to jello and you fall on your face as though dead. Have you ever had a pizza that made you do that? I hope not. Nothing and no one is worthy of our awe but God. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Only the glorified Lord is truly awesome. Nothing else comes close. So we can be thankful that we serve such a great and awesome God. When Christ shall come With shout of Indeed, how great the Lord is. I used to try to remind my kids, uh, only God is awesome. Okay, so uh, not so much a saying nowadays, but uh, that little devotional that was uh, shared, I thought that was really cool. So thanks uh, for sharing that, Dakota. And let's be reminded that indeed, only the Lord is awesome. If you're here with us, worshiping online or here in person, and this is the first time you've connected with us at Creekside, we just want to welcome you, extend a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, There is, if you're here in person, there's a welcome uh, table out there. We'd like you to stop by after the service and pick up a gift that's just for you. And if you have in your bulletin, if you're here, if you have a bulletin, uh, there is an extra flap if you wouldn't mind filling that out and just laying it and uh, put it in the offering box, which is there's a box on the uh, table out there for offering since we're not collecting offering. If you want to give that way, that'd be great. As a guest, we'd appreciate it. Or if you have a prayer request, you're part of our church family, we encourage you to fill those out and send them in. We do pray for those things, so thanks for doing that. Just a reminder, this is Thanksgiving week, so we are not having any activities here on Wednesday night. Uh, just before Thanksgiving, so there'll be no online or in-person meetings of uh, youth, young people, or Bible studies or anything like that, so I just want to remind you of that as well. And I just wanted to say one thing. Uh, I was uh, thinking about this last week. I didn't say it, but in, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. And, you know, I know these are trying times, 
uh, difficult days. And I just, uh, people say, well, how are you dealing with all this COVID stuff and all that? And I don't know, everybody's dealing with it differently, but uh, some people are dealing with it the same. It's just kind of discouraging and frustrating at the same time. And so I, I thought about Romans chapter 12. And Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Wouldn't it be great if by God's grace, we actually lived like the body of Christ? And we actually were devoted to one another in brotherly love. That we would pray for one another. We'd encourage one another. And everybody's like, well, should we wear a mask? Should we not wear a mask? What do we do? Well, here at Creekside, we don't have a mask mandate, okay? But if, if it would be a gracious thing for you to wear one uh, for the sake of other people, then do. And if you have liberty not to, then that's fine too. Just respect people's space. Let's just try to be respectful of each other and encourage one another. So there's not like, well, if you don't wear a mask, you're shamed. Or if you do wear a mask, you're not living by faith. It's that, hey, for the sake of love, maybe you're okay with not wearing a mask. That's cool. Fine with me. I'm fine with that. Maybe you don't want to just get up in people's face, uh, but you could talk to people. And if you do wear a mask, that's cool too. Uh, just uh, respect people's ideas and understandings. Let's live by grace and love each other and encourage each other. And I also want to say this. Uh, some of you listening on online, you know, we haven't seen you for a long time. We miss you, okay? Uh, we, we wish we could see you in person. And you haven't seen us. And so let's be the body of Christ. You haven't seen somebody and you want to see them, or you miss them, call them. Uh, don't wait for them to call you. Uh, you want to encourage somebody, then encourage somebody. Instead of let's be the body, not just wait for people to call us, minister to us. Let's reach out and minister to them if we can by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are so great. And I am convicted by John's response to the presence of, of God. It reminds me so much of Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6. And woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so we come this morning, Father, thanking you for your mercy and grace, praying that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us and encourage us. We pray that as we continue to worship you through the study of your word, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, that we would understand what your word says, and that we would apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. I just want you to answer this question in your mind, not shout it out. What criteria would you use to measure a person's greatness? How would you determine if a person was a great person? What things would you list? What short list would you have? As I thought about this question, the world would determine greatness by a number of different categories or measures. They would say a person's intellectual capacity. They would say a person's financial prosperity, a person's political title. They would say perhaps it was their athletic achievements or maybe it was their job title that would be used to measure their Greatness. Maybe it's musical ability. Maybe it's acting ability. Maybe it's the power and influence that they have in society. But I would guarantee you that for the most part, the measures that God uses for greatness are 
completely different. They do not coincide with the world's measures for greatness. And we see this very vividly in the text that we're looking at this morning as Jesus holds up for us some of God's measures of greatness in the person of John the Baptist. As he tries to move on from this questions of doubt that John had now to establish in many minds the the greatness of John. So it seemed like John comes to Jesus asking, "Are, are you the guy? I mean, are you really the one? And Jesus has to explain it to him. And then John is like leaving. And uh, so the crowd's like, well, what's going on here? And so Jesus answers these questions and he lays out for us in the historical life and ministry of John the Baptist what it is that uh, are these measures of greatness, that at least not all of them, but some of them. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 or on your phone or your device. And we're going to look at at Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. And here, four marks of John's greatness provide us, number one, an example to follow. Number two, they prove to us that John is God's prophetic messenger, heralding the way of Jesus. And finally, they they propel us not only to believe in Jesus, but also to proclaim this Jesus that we believe in because of who John is, what John did, and what it tells us about the person of Jesus. So I'm going to read the text, verses 7 through 15, Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. And as these were going away, now who are these? These are the disciples of John who had come to ask Jesus, is he really the Christ or do we look for another? Okay. Jesus began to speak to the multitudes. Evidently, there must have been a multitude around when Jesus was answering the question. What did you go out to see, out into the wilderness to look at, a reed? shaken by the wind, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who eat, who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why do you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, There is a lot in that passage, but we're going to look at what I think are four marks of greatness that he identifies as John that, again, prove John as this great messenger. They also provide us an example to follow. And they propel us to to share and believe this Jesus and to share him with other people. The first one is this, that we see that in verse... Seven, that John was solidly uncompromising. Jesus uh, uses a series of rhetorical questions, and evidently John's doubt about the identity of Jesus had been exposed before a large crowd. And so the crowd, many of whom knew about, knew about John and also knew about Jesus, uh, they must have been a little bit perplexed, like uh, John had spoken confidently about God. And he'd spoken confidently the message of God previously. And we're not going to look there now, but in Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, the people thought he was a prophet, that John was a prophet. And so now his doubt 
probably caused many of them to question if his message was reliable and if his Messiah was real. Because if John the Baptist, who had heralded the Messiah, if John the Baptist, who had been there at the baptism of Jesus and heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son, if John the Baptist, who had said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, now is saying, is this really the guy? Ooh. So they're wondering. You see, here's the thing. John's circumstances, John's circumstances didn't define who God is. Didn't define who Jesus is. Your circumstances, my circumstances, do not define who Jesus is. They may cause us to question who Jesus is, but they don't define who Jesus is. And neither, neither did John's doubt, neither did John's doubt discredit his witness. That's the thing. Circumstances don't define who Jesus is. Neither does his doubt discredit his witness about who this person of Jesus is. And so, Jesus set about to employ these rhetorical questions in his teaching in order to confirm the greatness of John, that he was indeed who he said he was. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, and he was declaring the Messiah was real, and John's message and ministry is valid, and so you need to listen to it. Read verse 7 with me. And as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What's the wilderness? <laughs> it's the, it's this, this barren wasteland and remote desert of Judea. I mean, it's like nothingness. It's not like wilderness when we think of Montana and the, all the trees and stuff. No, it's a desert, okay? What did you go out in to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I took a picture, or I didn't take a picture, I found a picture online of, of reeds, okay? There's these, these tall, thin plants that are along the water's edge, and they are flimsy, and, and they, every time the wind blows, a little breeze will send them shifting and shaking and waving and wind. So Jesus says to them, two rhetorical questions, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? The rhetorical answer should be no, because John was not such a man whose convictions were shifted and flimsy and whatever the waves and winds of doctrine were flipping around. No, John was firm, okay? His convictions were firm. He was solid. He was unwavering in his mission and his message. Yes, he stood up to the Pharisees. He stood up to the scribes. He stood up to the Roman soldiers. He stood up to Herod. That's why he was in prison, because he had stood up to Herod. Uh, you see, he was not pandering to political correctness of his day. He wasn't one of these guys who licked his finger and checked which way the wind was going to determine what he was going to tell people. He wasn't a weak-spined, wimpy, weak-kneed, people-pleasing person. John was John. The obvious answer is no. Several years ago, our family uh, was traveling to the southern rim of the Grand Canyon. And I know I've mentioned the Grand Canyon before, but it was a trip that was amazing. And as we, we traveled along, we went through miles and miles and miles of nothing but high plateau, desert, sagebrush, and sand or rocky, rocky ground. It was like, what in the world are we doing out in the middle of nowhere? Until we got to the Grand Canyon. And this is what we saw. Oh! Oh! That's why we're out in the wilderness, to see this. 
Jesus says, what did you go out to see when you went out to see John? Just wasting your time? No, you went to see something spectacular, and that's what you saw. You saw John the Baptist. People went to see and hear him speak the truth boldly, and they weren't disappointed. They were not disappointed at all. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to put it up on the screen, or 3, verses 7 through 10. This is the message of John the Baptist, okay? But when he saw many of the Pharisees, okay, now these are the religious teachers. Okay, so you imagine John is talking to the religious teachers who went out into the wilderness, coming to where he was baptizing, and he said to them, Oh, you high and mighty officials of the, of the religious order, I want to show my deepest respect to you as people who have labored hard and studied the Scripture. No! <laughs> he says, you bunch of snakes. You vipers. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce the fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's speaking of them. The axe of God's judgment is at the root of the tree, ready to chop it down, and you're next in line. That's the message of John, okay? That's the John they know. John's resolve is captured a little bit in this little quote by William Penn. And William Penn said this, this is what John was actually doing. William Penn said this, Right is right, even if everyone is against it. And wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. Right is right, even if everyone is against it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. And John said, The crowds went out to hear someone with divine authority, whose message should be taken care, uh, seriously. John wasn't promoting himself. John was promoting Jesus. Listen to what he said. He says, in John chapter 1, verse 1, I am not the Christ, he said. But he said of Jesus, he is the Son of God, John 1. You read John 1, that's, he is the Son of God. And then he said in John 3, verse 30, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. We told our kids on the way to the Grand Canyon that this was going to be spectacular, you know. <laughs> you know, teenagers are just kind of not too impressed with much, you know. Video games and uh, maybe rides at Disney World, they, they might be impressed with that. But uh, they, they were thinking, yeah, yeah. So in spite of their expectations, their dampened expectations, I'm telling you, they were awestruck. I've never seen my kids, my oldest two kids. It's like, they walked up the edge of the Grand Canyon, and I, if I've told you this, I'm sorry, they just went. Wow. That, that, that's, that was worth the trip. You know, wow. They went out into the wilderness. These people went out to see John, and it was like, wow. Something is going on here. And whatever they expected, their experience was spectacular. <laughs> Although for the scribes and Pharisees and some of the Roman soldiers, it was a little bit uh, humbling. It was very humbling. And what was his message? His message was return, repent, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ as your Savior. And you will be delivered from the wrath of God. Notice he says, who 
warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come. You know John the Baptist, when he came preaching, he was preaching wrath. That's why he was questioning if Jesus was the guy, because he was waiting for God to bring down the hammer of his wrath against sin. We should cut him some slack. Our world is in desperate need of men and women to speak the truth like John. Desperate need of men and women with uncompromising, unwilling to compromise in our proclamation and in our practice of God's Word. And especially in these days when doing so is more and more opposed, and there's more and more opposition to what we're called to do and called to believe and called to share. He was solidly uncompromising. Secondly, verse 8, he was self-denying. Second set of questions reveals another mark of his greatness. Verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. (laughs) Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, I think we'll have a slide of it. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt. I, I I can't even read it without itching, you know. Camel's hair? Ugh. Uh, makes me itch just thinking. I never, I've never been on a camel, but I've, been, I've, I've felt the back of a hog before, and it is bristly and ra- nasty, and I can't imagine wearing it around, you know. It's not like you have a football, which is a pigskin that's been all t- treated and taken care of. This is camel's hair. And a leather belt, and he ate wild locusts and wild honey. Oh, sounds like a party, right? Let's join up and let's go out and see John, and we can all be out there living our minimalist lifestyle. No. That was not John. He was, he was over, the overly self-indulgent don't go where John went. They don't do what John did. Okay, they don't take up residence in this harsh environment. John was not wimpy and wavering, but neither was he soft and self-gratifying. I think that's what Jesus is highlighting. MacArthur in his commentary put it this way. His lifestyle was a living visual protest against self-indulgence and self-centeredness. A living protest against self-indulgence and self-centeredness. And then you read the end of verse 8, and he says, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Oh, wow. Now, there is a subtle, but maybe not so subtle, slam against John's captor, Herod. Because where was Herod? John's in prison. Where was Herod? In his palace with his soft clothes, eating his good food. Here's, that's not where John was. His wardrobe, his work, and his ways, John's, reveal his willingness to deny himself. He had turned away from the pleasure and popularity of the world. That wasn't his thing. You think about that. He, he started a church, you know, out in the wilderness, not, 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 not in the prime spot on the highway, you know. They had to walk miles through the desert to get, in the wilderness to get to him. And then he came and he gave them this really nice and warm and welcoming message. You bunch of sinners, you're ready to go to hell, you're going to die. God's bringing judgment. That, that, that's really not, I mean, I've read books on, you know, church planting, and I've read books on, you know, ministry. It's, it's really not a ministry model that's used much, you know, except by Jesus and John. Because the truth is, folks, we are sinful 
wretched people headed for an eternity apart from God. And John was called to proclaim a message of God's wrath, but, but not just his wrath that could be, we could be delivered from through God's mercy. That's the message of joy that Jesus brings. And John was right there. He was not a man who was focused on acquisition of material possessions, but on God's mission. He was not a man seeking men's praise, nor career advancement, nor a comfortable life. We have some friends that uh, sold their home in a, one neighborhood and deliberately bought a, a more modest home in a less than ideal neighborhood uh, simply so they could minister to the people in that neighborhood. Willing to do what God wanted them to do. We have a member of our own church, Bob Short, who left the corporate world so that he could serve God full-time in ministry. Not seeking the praise of men, but the purposes of God for his life. Look at John 10, 38. If you have your Bibles open, maybe you can't. If you have your device, you can't flip back that much. Uh, but it says this, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. See, John denied himself. Now, I want to say this. John's calling was unique, okay? He had a unique calling to be this guy out in the wilderness, you know, this Elijah-type person who was wearing camel skin clothing. But guess what? But his commitment to self-denial should be universal. His calling was unique, but his commitment should be universal among the children of God. Not in the particulars in which we live, <clears throat> but in practice. It should be in our practice, not necessarily in every particular, but we should be willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Not in the exact same way that John did, but as John did if you understand what I'm saying. You see, God calls people, okay? God calls godly people to engage in different vocations, okay? He wants Christians to be involved in education and business and in trades, you know, using your hands, electricians and, and carpenters and, and painters and these kinds of things. He wants us to be involved in professions and doctors and nurses and lawyers and engineers and accountants. All of these different things God wants us to be involved in, so not everybody's calling is the same as John's. But regardless of our calling, are we willing to use our time, our talents, our treasures, and our training for God's mission and not necessarily just for our own material advancement? John was not looking and using his clothes or his charisma or his comfortable lifestyle in the wilderness, but it was the content of his message that drew people to him. I think about this. You know, Jay Leno has a really fabulous car collection. I didn't give you a picture of Jay Leno's car collection. Joanna Gaines, uh, you know, has all these decorations, and all the gals are like, oh, yeah, let's just do this, uh, you know. I want to be like Joanna Gaines, you know. I want a magnolia thing. I want this in my cookbook in my kitchen, and I want all of this stuff in my house. And prosperity preachers are proclaiming a guaranteed blessing of, of life, and all of that stuff draws people in. Right? Oh, 
kind of fascinated by Jay Leno's cars. The women are fascinated by Joanna Gaines's decorative ability. Uh, some people are just enamored by the promises of preachers that you're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity. But that is not what should draw us in. When Jesus praises John, he presents to us a model to follow. Am I willing to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Christ? Am I willing to deny myself for the sake of the kingdom? Are we willing to do that? He, John was intentional about resisting the lure of vanity, the lure of appearance, the lure of opulence, the lure of self-indulgence. He said, you know, I'm not going to worry about my clothes like Jesus said. Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. He was willing to put first the kingdom of God and seek his righteousness and let these things be added to you. And so I ask myself, I ask you this morning, how do we apply his perspective, John's perspective of self to our own life, to our own talents, our own treasures, our own time, our own training? How are we leveraging what God has given us sacrificing it to leverage it for God's work. I'm, I'm praying about this, asking myself, you know, what are, the, what are the ways that I could, you know, better leverage the resources God has given for His work that I maybe just need to sacrifice a little bit? I mean, now look, if, if you're coming to church, it could be that you're doing that because you could be home watching Joanna Gaines, right? Or you could be uh, surfing the internet, uh, finding some latest Ponzi scheme that you could uh, make money from, or you could be doing watching NFL Today or whatever. So you could be sacrificing. When you give money to the Lord's work, it, it can be, if our heart is right, it can be that we're sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom. If we serve in ministry, caring for people, that's ways to do it. So there are a lot of ways to do it. But the question for me, the question for us is, am I willing to deny myself? People call you on the phone. It's like, ah, sorry, I'm I'm in the middle of my TV show. You know, I I don't have time to talk. Or, you know, I, I really want to go on a bike ride, but it's such a beautiful day, you know, but maybe God wants me to talk to my neighbor. Ah, he'll be there tomorrow, the weather won't be the same today so I, I need to I need to you know strike while the iron's hot you know I got to get get to my thing I mean just throughout our day am I willing to say oh Lord here's here's my day it's an open hand use it use it for you whatever you want whoever you bring whatever it is I'll be open to what you want me to do so he was John was solidly uncompromising I mean, he was self-denying. And then we go on in the text, and we see that John was speaking prophetically. Interestingly, in verse 9, uh, uh, Matthew Henry, as he summarizes this section, he says this. He says, his greatest commendation, John's, uh, uh, greatest commendation of all, was his office and his ministry. The final question in verse 9. Now, you see the series of questions, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. Here's the final question. It says, But why did you go out to see a prophet? Now, I know the ESV translates it different. It says each one of these, I think it says, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? That's kind of keeping in the sense. But he says, why did you go out to to see a prophet? Well, the final question serves Jesus' purpose to warn the people and to wake them up to the greatness of John. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yeah, you did. This is the only one you answer yes to. <laughs> was he 
A reed blown by the wind? No. Was he a guy in soft clothing? No. Was he a prophet? Yes. He was a prophet. And then, the yes is also elaborated on. He, he is more than a prophet. What's a prophet? A prophet is the mouthpiece of God. They spoke for God, demanding compliance to God's word and declaring what God was going to do. So he was demanding that we obey God and declaring that God has got work yet to do and, and here's what's going to happen. So he was, a, he was a voice. See, John was the voice. 400 years there had been no prophet in Israel. 400 years of silence from God for the people. And John came in breaking the silence and he denied. He had denied John chapter 1 verse 29. He said, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the, the literal person of Elijah. Okay? And he said, I'm also not the prophet, which is Deuteronomy 18.15, which there was a prophet prophesied the prophet would come. He's not the Messiah. No, he said, that's not me. In fact, he claimed to be inferior, not, not worthy to... to Take the sandals off of Jesus' feet. He was the one who said, He must increase, I must decrease. This is John. And he was, yet, yet Jesus says of him, He was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was the prince of prophets. He was the greatest prophet, more than a prophet. John was the most commanding, most compelling, and most condemning prophet they had ever seen. He was there. So I want you to think with me just for a minute here, what made him more than a prophet? A few reasons. First of all, he was more than a prophet because John excelled the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets, um, in that they longed to see the day of Christ, he lived in the day of Christ and announced it. Okay? So the Old Testament prophets are looking forward to the coming of Christ and they're prophesying about that which they did not fully know and John was there proclaiming this is the dude. He was Look at verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written. Jesus says this of John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's loosely quoting Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and applying it to John. So John was also greater than the prophets in that he prophesied, but he was also the fulfillment of prophecy. He's not only prophesying, but he was the fulfillment of of prophecy. Jesus is applying Malachi chapter 3, 1 to, to John, declaring that John had the unique privilege and great honor of preparing the way for the Messiah. There's an interesting twist in the text because in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it is the Lord speaking, and he says, I'll send my messenger before me. Yahweh is going to send a messenger before Yahweh. And then Jesus says that John is the guy who was saying he was that messenger declaring that Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh. <laughs> I'm sending my messenger before me. No, you, your. You see the pronouns changed in chapter 11, verse 10. It's Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also divine. He is the divine Messiah. He's coming, announcing that Jesus is Lord. And then if we looked at John chapter 1, verse 23, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, and Luke chapter 1, verse 76, we'd see that he's also the one, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. <laughs> he's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. He's the one there. All the other prophets did what? They said, Christ is coming. John did what? He said, he's here. This is him. He's here. 
And he is the one. As he says, John says it in John chapter 1. He is the light to the nations, which is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. And he's the one who would bring my salvation, God says, to all the world, Isaiah 49, verse 6. And this salvation would come to those who would believe, John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And what is it that they needed to believe about this Messiah? They needed to believe that this is the Messiah who was the one in Isaiah chapter 53 who would die, he would bear our iniquities in his own body on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way, but he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him, so that if we would believe, repent and believe, Isaiah 53, 11, we would be justified, declared righteous before a holy and righteous God, so that Paul says in Colossians, he is the one who came to reconcile us to God, because all of us are sinful people. Destined for an eternity apart from God, but God in His infinite wisdom sent His Son Jesus, who died on the cross, to pay the debt for our sin, so that if we would repent and believe, we would be rescued from the wrath of God, which the axe has already laid at the roots, to bring the judgment of God. But we can escape it by the mercy and grace of God through the person of Jesus. Oh, John was better because they all preached and proclaimed that this Christ was coming. He says Christ is here. And finally he was better because John was not only a messenger announcing, but he was a minister attending to Jesus. He baptized him. He baptized Jesus. And Jesus says this of John in verse 11, truly, absolute truthfulness, no question, he says, truly. It's an unquestioned truthfulness. Now, I don't know if you've kept up on what's going on, but uh, recently the CIS, which is the cybersecurity part of the United States federal government, recently put out a statement that the 2020 general election was the most secure in U.S. history. Well, I mean, events of the last couple of weeks have, have proven that to be not true, okay? And if it is true, then, then the other ones were really bad, uh, you know, but this is just not true. There's a, there's a credibility issue for the CIS at this point. There was no credibility issue for Jesus because when Jesus says truly, truly, truthfully, this is happening, it's happening. He says this, truly, I say to you, among those born of women of all humanity, there was, has not arisen one greater, anyone greater than John. No one greater than John. Several years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at my good friend Bob Cosbo's uh, celebration of his 20 years as pastor at the Marshalltown Evangelical Free Church. And I spoke with deep admiration uh, of my, my love and concern and, and appreciation for Bob and my deep respect for him as a person. All of my commendations were, were wonderful, and Bob is a great person, but no commendation compares to what Jesus gave to John. He's greater than any human being who ever lived. Among those born of women... There's not a risen one greater. He was the greatest human being because of his spiritual maturity, because of his connection to the Messiah, his messianic connection, because of his ministry as the herald of the coming king, and because of his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He alone had the honor of introducing Jesus. And because of his mission, because of his message, we should be listening to his mission and his message, because he was the greatest. Uh, you know, if you're, a, if you're a young aspiring basketball player, 
And uh, Michael Jordan gives you advice, who in my opinion is the greatest basketball player of all time. You can argue with me afterwards later, but guess what? You better listen to what Michael Jordan says if you want to really be a good basketball player. If you want to be an excellent musician, maybe you should listen to somebody who is one of the greatest musicians in the world. John the Baptist is the greatest human being who ever lived. But get this. The amazing thing is the perspective on John's greatness is set in perspective by the statement Jesus makes next. Well, this blows me away. Yet, verse 11, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Up to the time of Jesus, John was the greatest human being. Now notice Jesus was fully human and fully God, so he was exempt from that because he was the greatest person ever living. But John was the greatest. But after that, after John and Jesus, the least in the kingdom. The most insignificant person in the kingdom of God, the most insignificant believer who's turned from their sin and trusted in Christ is greater than John the Baptist. Doesn't matter if you have a degree. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your credentials are. It doesn't matter where you live, what color your skin is. It doesn't matter anything. If you're in the kingdom of God, the least of the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. That blows my mind. Why? How is that true? Because our perspective and our position. Now John had this position in redemptive history announcing the heralding the Messiah. Our position is even greater than his. Our privilege is, is greater than his. You see, think about it. John was unclear, even in his day, about what the Messiah would do. He was unclear in his, well, a little bit lacking in understanding of all that the kingdom of God entailed. But we look back, and we know fully the identity and ministry of Jesus. We understand completely the perspective of the kingdom, that the kingdom is a future and present reality entered into by faith in the finished work of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, so that we know more than John did in fullness. And by God's grace, now think about this, by God's grace, we are privileged to share the message of a crucified, risen, and coming again Savior with greater clarity than John ever could to a world that's lost in need of it. That makes us greater than him. Not because of us. Don't get that. Not because we're so smart. But because of him, because of what Christ has done. If you are here this morning and listening and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God says, look, you understand more fully what God's ministry and message is through the person of Jesus than anybody ever could prior to Christ. John, the greatest man included. And you have the privilege of sharing that joyous message with more clarity than anybody. That Jesus Christ came and died in our place because we deserve the wrath of God. That if we would turn from our sins and trust in Him, then we would be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life and escape condemnation and hell and have purpose and meaning in this life. There's a reason to live. 
I remember as a 12-year-old boy listening to the gospel, that what I just shared with you, for the very first time it hit me. I wanted to live for something that transcended me. I wanted to live for something that was bigger than just getting two, house, two cars in a house, having 2.2 kids, and making money. I have a reason to live. Because I serve the King of Kings. And I will live for eternity with Him in glory. And that's what we want, I want for you as well. That there's a purpose far greater than just what this life has to offer. It includes this life, so we are here to share this message, given the privilege of sharing the message. And the final mark of His greatness is that John had a significant, significant ministry that gives credibility to what he said so that we should accept it. Verse 12, probably the most difficult verse in the passage, okay? And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Something perplexing is declared by Jesus. Something wild is going on from the days of John the Baptist on. In this undoubtedly difficult text, I'm going to give you my distilled understanding of it at this point in my ministry. You don't have to agree with it, but we can talk about it. But really interestingly enough, regardless of what perspective you take on the details of this passage, you end up in the same place. Realizing that number one, and this is my take on it, that when the text says the kingdom of God suffers violence, I think the NIV translation probably is actually better, which it says it's forcefully advancing. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And this is in concert with Luke chapter 16, verse 16. You can look at Luke 16, 16, which kind of gives credibility to this understanding. The kingdom of God is God's rule over men. The kingdom of God, God's rule over men, is advancing. Okay? As the hostile forces of darkness are, are put at bay... And we see this particularly in the ministry and message of John and the ministry and message of Jesus. Because what was Jesus doing? He was proclaiming the kingdom. He was healing their diseases. He was raising the dead. He was doing miraculous things that were contrary to the the forces of darkness. On the other hand, the text says that violent men take it by force. Which I would understand to mean that there is violent opposition to this advancement in the kingdom of God. And that's evident when you look at the fact that, guess where John is? He's in prison, right? And guess what Jesus has just said the disciples are going to go through? John chapter 10. Oh, fathers and mothers are going to fight and hate each other, and there are going to be divisions and cause frictions, and there's going to be problems in your life. And guess what? We're going to get to this in the next couple of weeks, but the people refuse to repent. And then we see ultimately this opposition when Jesus is crucified on the cross. And so, forcefully advancing, the kingdom is forcefully advancing. But violent men are opposing this advancement. That's how I understand it. And then finally, we see this, that Jesus, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This is verse 13. It's a testimony to the consistent witness of God through the centuries, Moses to Malachi that culminated in the person of John the Baptist. And then verse 14 says this, And if you will accept it, he himself is Elijah. Now this is another difficult passage, because what does it mean? Because John said, I'm not Elijah. 
Jesus says he is Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 says he's Elijah. You know, he's the fulfillment of that promise that, that Elijah would come. See, I send the prophet Elijah to be before you. That great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I come and strike the land with total destruction. So what's going on? Is he Elijah or isn't he Elijah? Well, Jesus says he is Elijah if you will accept it. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. He's the one crying in the wilderness. He's the messenger that's coming. He is the one who announces the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's what Elijah was supposed to do, and that's what John did. But John was not a literal Elijah. He wasn't a physical reincarnation of Elijah. He was an Elijah-like figure. And he fulfilled all of these prophetic announcements, revealing he was preparing the way for the Lord. He was the reformer coming to announce the coming of Messiah, but he was not the reformer in the ultimate sense. Why not? Because the children of Israel rejected him as Elijah. That's what the text says. you got to look at the text. And if you are care to accept it, he himself is Elijah. I mean, several years ago, this guy by the name of Bertie Madoff uh, ripped off a bunch of people. They, they trusted him. <laughs> they, they thought his word was true. And if you would accept his word, uh, you'd be rich. No, if you accepted his word, you became poor. But Jesus is not Bernie Madoff. And John the Baptist is not Bernie Madoff. If you accept him as Elijah, he would have inaugurated the kingdom right there. But God had a different plan. And since he didn't, it's my understanding that he was the initial historical fulfillment of Elijah. He did come announcing the coming of Messiah, preparing the way of the Lord. But there is yet to come an ultimate fulfillment of Elijah. Read Revelation chapter 11, Elijah and Moses standing there uh, announcing and prophesying. So that I think that there's a warrant for that. And he concludes then with this warning. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. John is the messenger preparing the way, so accept it, he says to these people. Ah, we know that they ultimately didn't, but he says accept it to us as well. He's the one who announced the coming of the Messiah. And we should accept it and act upon it. So if you're here this morning, you know, and you don't, you know, you say, I don't know about this. It seems like Jesus is just being self-serving here. <laughs> Believe this guy who announced that I'm coming, so you'll accept me. Well, okay, yeah. He was saying that. But he was saying that because he wants you to consider the maturity of John. He wants you to consider the messianic connection of John to Jesus. He wants us to consider the ministry of John. He announced the coming of, and the message of John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus is saying John is the real deal. Believe what he said. I am it. I'm the guy. And that's what I would say to you this morning. Are you trusting right now that Jesus' death and that alone paid the debt that you deserve so that you would be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life and purpose on this life now? And if not, surrender. Quit trying to live your life on your own. Quit trying to make it on your own, thinking you can earn your way to God. You can't. The debt's been paid. Receive the gift by faith and turn and trust Christ. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's the thing that encourages me. God has given us an example in the person of John. He didn't compromise. I don't want to be a wind-testing, weak-kneed, wobbly-kneed, people-pleasing uh, pastor or person. 
I want to speak the truth of God in love, but with boldness. That's what he needs from us. People need to turn. You know why the world's a mess? It's because we're messed up. People need Christ. If people were surrendering to Christ and sent elevating self, the world would be a much better place. One day it will be. But in the meantime, we're here to spread the salt and the light. So there's an example for us to follow. There's an encouragement that Jesus really is the Christ. It was promised. It was fulfilled. And he's the one. And also, then there's this energy, energizing me to share that. I never thought about myself greater than John the Baptist. Really? No, not really. Not in my sense. But yeah, now we can share this message. We have this message we know more fully than John ever did. So let's share it. And we, we think about this. When John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, how did he do that? By dying on a cross. And so as we take bread and cup as symbols of his death and his blood shed for us, we remember that he died so that we could live. And this gift becomes personal when we individually accept his death as the payment for our sin and trust that his death gave us life, that his God's wrath came upon Jesus so that our life could be in God because Jesus died in our place. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I would invite you to turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and then take the bread and the cup in the silence and the, of your own heart and quietness of your own spirit as we have the song sung and rejoice in the gift of God that he's given to you through Jesus. And if you know Christ, then rejoice and then let us Reflect on how we can live more obediently for him. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, you've given us this wonderful passage, a reminder, the greatness of John, to call us to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.